In our last episode, If I Were King Part 2, we spoke with two millennials. In this episode, If I Were King Part 3, we take our show to Halifax, Nova Scotia, and speak to two people from the baby boom generation. Baby boomers were born between 1946 and 1964. They are currently between 56 and 74 years of age. Well, hi, Craig, and uh, thanks for agreeing to join us on the show. As you know, this episode is called If I Were King. And the context for it is that the pandemic has created kind of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity um, for people to sit back and reflect um, on the world and their position within the world. So we're going across Canada and we're asking Canadians, if you could change one thing, what would it be and what would be required to make it happen? Well, only one thing, huh? <laughs> well, I know it's a complicated question, but things that impact you at your current state in life, you're, you're retired, uh, you're living in the beautiful city of Dartmouth, uh, Nova Scotia. If you were in a position to change something, what would you do? I think the prime thing that is going on now that I'm really not in step with is this sense that people are are going, I don't have to, and you can't make me. With the pandemic going on, there are people that refuse to wear masks. There are people that don't care about anyone other than themselves. There is no sense of community unless they find like-minded people, which are, unfortunately, it seems it seems to be that uh, I'm going to go with anti-maskers. Right. That they're easy to find. Oh, you don't like wearing a mask either. Well, let's not wear masks. And I know two people that don't wear masks, so we've got a bunch now. And they just, I don't know, they just don't seem to care about anyone else. Yeah, do you think this is is um, somewhat deeper than that? I mean, what, what's causing this reaction or this um, you know pushback against wearing masks, of course, but, it, but not recognizing the impact their behavior has on others within the community. Well, I think it goes, goes back. I don't know, maybe my generation going back to the, the hippies, the protesters back in the sixties, they saw something they didn't like and protested against it at being Vietnam and were successful at it. And they instilled this, in the following generation, if you protest against anything, then you're doing, you know, you're doing something wonderful, except it's not. You know, I'm not saying that, that, that the people that were protesting in, about Vietnam were wrong, but again, we'll go with this. Let's defy the government, and that's okay. Uh, we're doing okay things. And I don't think that's right. And I'm not saying you shouldn't defy the government because the government is not always right. And Lord knows we have enough proof of that right now. Yeah, well, it seems as if the people are feeling that the rights of the individual supersede that of of the larger society, um, almost as if they don't really understand the notion of liberalism in its true sense, where... Um, you know, freedom comes with a sense of responsibility. It doesn't mean that you can do whatever you want at any point in time, but there's the principle of harm. So you're, you should be able to do uh, what you want in so long as it does not, insofar as it does not cause harm to others. Um, and in this case, well, of course, with the pandemic, not wearing a mask, um, you know, can potentially cause harm to others. You said <laughs> the R word, responsibility. I sometimes wonder, you know, what, what sense of responsibility do people have towards other people? You know, the question, am I my brother's keeper? Well, in my mind, the answer is, hell yes. 
but only to a point. Do I have to go to every homeless person and give them money? No. Do I have to have a sense of responsibility for things that are happening in the world in general? Yeah, kind of, sort of. Well, it seemed to me in history, I mean, you know, following the Second World War, that there was um, a sense of global responsibility. Everybody who had lived through the horrors of World War I and World War II came out the other end recognizing that um, we have a responsibility to the larger larger globe um, in order to avoid something like this happening again in the future. I, I think that that sense of global responsibility is gone. At least in at least in North America, anyway. I'm not sure about the rest of the world, but at least in North America, and not so much in Canada, we still feel responsible to other people and giving them aid, money, food, military, whatever. But even that is changing. We're becoming more isolationist. The mood in other places, namely the United States lately has been completely isolationist. And I don't know who to blame for that. And I'm as, probably as guilty as this as anyone, that we, we want our kids to enjoy life. And as such, we don't draw as many lines as used, as used to be drawn. Right. And I'm not sure whether that's a good thing or not, but that's what's happening. And the sense of permissiveness is being carried through to where people think they can do just about anything they want to and get away with it. Right. You know, if you have, if you have enough people, you have a protest group. If you have a protest group, you have a voice. And I'm not sure whether that's a good thing or not, because not all voices should be heard. Right, and I think as as we discussed, you know, in the lead up to the show, the um, the impact of social media may have something to do with it all. Um, the notion <laughs> of, of using algorithms to separate people out into groups filled with like minded people who share the same ideas. So they the algorithms and the social media uh, platforms feed you content, feed you news based on what they believe or the algorithm has, has identified as areas of interest or commonality. And so you end up in groups of people who all think the same way you do and who get the same news feeds, which may not be the same news feeds that go to other people. So there creates this, there's a divisiveness created um, as a result of that. And certainly young people um, in this current generation, um, are exposed to social media like no other. Of course, they've grown up with it. It's uh, as soon as they were born, they were had phones in their hands, and they were um, engaged in so on social media platforms. So I wonder how much of that impacts that, where people think, well, you know, we have a group of people and we all believe this, and we don't think masks, for example, are a good thing, um, and so we're going to protest against the using of, the use of masks, um, and and. and ignore the science, but I wonder whether or not they're actually uh, reading the science or whether they're simply reading, um, you know, using Donald Trump's favorite expression, fake news, um, because it it has been proven that fake news um, generates more hits in social media than real news. So I wonder how much of that is is impacting, as you say, this, this notion of I can do whatever I want, and there are other people out there that feel the same way. I'm making myself sound a thousand years old. Sorry about that. But I didn't have this when I was growing up. I was in my 50s when the internet really came into being. And I was in my 60s before I got a cell phone. And I still do not carry my cell phone around with me all the time. I see people looking at their cell phones sitting across from their family. I have seen people in the same room texting each other instead of talking. And I'm going, this this isn't right, at least to my mind. Right. Again, I may be an old fuddy-duddy, and, you know, I'm not quite a Luddite, but I'm not far off. And I don't feel I have the need. I don't need to know who else feels like I do. Most of the time. 
It's always nice to know that somebody understands you. Right. You know, whether it's family or just a friend, it's always nice to know that there is someone else out there that understands you. But I don't have to rely on social media for that. Well, I mean, going back to your comment, initial opening comments about people not wearing masks and not taking responsibility for the larger community or the larger society. I wonder, do we need to make stories of um, of people that have actually contracted COVID-19 more visible? I mean, those personal stories, because it seems to me that when you, if you can sit back and say, well, I don't really know anybody that's had COVID-19. Um, so it's not very personal to me. So I can place my desire to not wear a mask, um, you know, and, and, and take that stance because I really don't, it hasn't impacted me on a personal level. So part of me wonders whether we need to highlight some of these individual stories more prominently so that people understand the seriousness of it. I think once you once you know somebody and somebody close to you, somebody in your family that's contracted the disease, and you've had to live through that experience, it very much changes your perspective on things like wearing a mask. I would think so as well. You brought an idea into my mind. It wouldn't be one thing that people would tune into to listen to you know, every minute of every day. But some of the people that were against wearing a mask had a family member or a friend die from COVID-19 and they might have been responsible for giving it to them. Mm. And just then interview them to see how they feel. You know, what their what their emotional state of being is like now as opposed to before. Right. I mean, it always, when it's close to home, it makes a big difference. So the people that you oh, yeah. know in, in um, Dartmouth, Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, that, that refuse to wear masks, what's their rationale for that stance? You know what, and, and I'm, I, I'm kind of glad about this, is I don't personally know anybody that doesn't wear, you know, that doesn't wear a mask where required. I see people that don't wear masks, but <laughs> you know, my fear of contagion at my age is fairly healthy, and I don't go up and approach them and say, "Tell me why you're not wearing a mask." Are you just, you know, do you hate everybody else in the world besides you, or you know, or are you just an idiot? I see them in the grocery stores. How much of this, you know, wearing a mask, not wearing a mask, do you think is based on sort of inconsistencies of communication across the country? So in other words, um, I'm in British Columbia, and in British Columbia, our Minister of Health, Bonnie Henry, has done a really good job at treating people as adults and not mandating the wearing of masks. So in British Columbia, there are places where you can go, um, you can go to grocery stores, typically, not all of them, without having to wear a mask. I know, for example, if you go into the Loblaws grocery store chains, you have to wear a mask. So there, there's kind of an inconsistency around it all. And I'm not sure that part of the, the people not wearing masks are just people that are saying, well, I'm not, I'm not exactly sure when I'm supposed to wear a mask, when it's okay not to wear a mask. You know, the, the information flows are inconsistent. So part of me wonders, um, you know, and I, I've been caught in that too, as I say, when you live in a community where masks aren't mandatory i mean obviously if i'm feeling not feeling well i wear a mask um if i go to somewhere that says we'd like you to wear a mask i wear a mask but there are places that don't require it and sometimes i don't and there are places where i've gone where i've said oh you have to wear a mask and geez i i didn't expect to have to wear a mask here because i'm not used to having to wear a mask in in a grocery store for example so you know back to my car and i get a mask and come back in so part of me wonders how much of it you know this mask versus no mask is just based on where you live the policies and procedures that are in place there um and the general expectations versus i i refuse to wear a mask actually the maritimes has been pretty good where, you know, they, there's a maritime bubble. And I'll just refer to Nova Scotia. That in Nova Scotia, if you go into a grocery store, any grocery store, you have to wear a mask. That's the law right now. And the only thing I can think of, and I know where you live, okay? 
And how's that working out for British Columbia as far as new cases go? Right. Well, we've seen certainly seen an uptick here. You know, yep. largely it's hard to know exactly where where it's come from. I mean, people say it's from large social gatherings inside, parties, and so forth. Uh, there's set tends to be, um, the blame tends to fall on younger people um, having parties, house parties, and going to bars and things like that. So, you know, I think I think we're learning as we go um, kind of, you know, where the risk areas are and where areas that we probably shouldn't be opening, um, like bars and strip clubs and, and things like that, where the exposure rates are likely to be much higher. Well, and, and there we go again, back to... Uh, one of your points about social media and like my you know like-minded people that they were told that this COVID nineteen only affects old people you know people over sixty then they dropped it people over fifty now they're finding kids little children that are developing you know developing positive signs of COVID nineteen. But there was all kinds of misinformation on social media. But it does, it's not going to affect me because I'm young and strong and healthy. I don't know. Is social media misused? Hell yeah. Absolutely. Does it have a good function? Oh, absolutely. Well, do you think we, you know, given the fact that there's the, the information, the policies, procedures vary so dramatically across Canada and, and, Certainly, the East Coast has been very stringent in their in their policies, and I think yeah. PEI perhaps the most stringent of all the provinces. Do you think that we need a national policy or a, a single communication strategy from the national level that says these are the policies and procedures we need to apply across the country? In other words, making it simpler for Canadians to adhere to a set of practices that are common. It'd be interesting because that would be seen as dictatorial. Mm -hmm. But yeah, actually, I think that that would probably be a very good thing. Because right now, this is what I feel. The three most populous provinces in the country are the ones that are showing spikes in COVID-19. And I think that is because there is no national guideline. BC doesn't have to do what Ontario does. Who doesn't have to do what Quebec does? Who doesn't have to do what either one of the other two do? Well, you know, there are other countries around the world that have done this. Israel um, um, comes to mind yep. because they've gone right back down into a second shutdown. Um, and I think largely um, as a result of opening schools and the infection rates went up very, very dramatically, very quickly. This was back in May. So now as a country, they are going through another shutdown period. You know, obviously something that nobody wants to do uh, here in Canada, but part of me just thinks, well, you know, we can't have all of these different guidelines because people move around. I mean, people move yeah. from province to province. So you know, we're, we're basically, you know, allowing different types of guidelines and procedures to travel across the country. As, as I said earlier, the East Coast has been pretty stringent on their policies. Um, and I know there's been a lot of pushback against that. But, you know, part of it is a recognition that they want to protect, the, you know, everybody that's living in the East Coast region from potentially from COVID coming in from outside visitors from other provinces. We've covered a sort of a broad range of topics, but it, and you started with the notion that you know people are not wearing masks or not respecting um, other people. Other people. So, if you were king and you could change yeah. one thing, what would it be? My rule as king was everybody who has any personal interaction with someone else or some other group of people would have to wear a mask. And that's my ruling. <laughs> well, thank you, sire. That brings us to the end of the episode. I want to thank you again for taking the time to speak with me um, about uh, being, you know, conscious of wearing masks and the things that you feel are important to you. Thanks again. And hopefully we'll have you back on the show uh, at a later date. Our next guest is Krista, a professional businesswoman also living in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Krista was born in 1963 placing her at the tail end of the baby boom. 
Well, thank you, Krista, for agreeing to be on the show today. Um, as you know, what we're talking about is is change, really. And, and during the pandemic, it's given us all of us a time to reflect and think about the world and our place within the world. And so this episode is called If I Were King. And what we're doing is going across Canada and asking Canadians if they could change one thing, what would it be and what would be required to make it happen? So that's what we want to ask you. Okay, well, thanks, um, Blake. Um, if I were king, I think the first thing that I would actually look at is a basic income. My thoughts on that is is that having the basic income would allow people who are, well, there are people who are unemployable, there are people who are only partially employable, and there are people who need more education. If there was a basic income, people would be able to actually do these things. They would be able to live healthy lives, which would help our health system. They would be able to get education, which would help overall with everything. I think basic income actually is a good beginning step. So what would you say to people? I mean, basic income is now pretty much a hot topic. It's in the news these days. And and, um, some say the Liberal government is considering this idea of a basic income. What would you say to people that say, well, this is a disincentive? Um, if we give people free money, then they won't want to work. Well, I mean, there's there's always going to be people who don't want to work. But in general, most people want to be able to do something. They want to be able to contribute. We're going to have people who can't, whether they're disabled physically, whether they're disabled mentally, whether they are suffering from mental illness or are just lazy. There's always going to be a percentage The lazy ones are going to be the small percentage. People need the ability to have the opportunity to go to school. Somebody who is working because they have to, working two, three jobs because minimum wage just doesn't cover it, they would be able to then work one job and go to school. Right. And you've touched on a number of issues there. One is is mental health. Um, The other is obviously poverty. Um, But I also like your idea that there's an ability through a basic income program to actually create a level of incentive for people to pursue things that they're passionate about, things that uh, they're good at, rather than simply things that they have to do out of necessity in order to live. Well, that's just it. I mean, how many people have no idea what they're passionate about Because all they're doing is grinding day to day, you know, at minimum wage. They're they're not going to be happy, but they haven't had the opportunity to find what they're passionate about. Well, yes, and and I agree. Again, critics will say that we can't afford to do this. What would you say to them? I would say, well, really, it would cost less overall to have a basic income than it does for housing help or mental health help? What about even just medical help? Without a basic income, people who are on assistance, whether it is disability, whether it is, quote, welfare, can't afford to eat or eat healthily because what's the cheapest and what's the fastest? It's usually going to be stuff that's not healthy. So we're going to actually even out, if not come out ahead this way. Yeah, I, I mean, there's certainly, again, some some strong supporters of this as well. But, of course, it, it, it sort of depends on a balance with, you know, we have, a, we have a large number of social services available in Canada. What would we keep and what would we get rid of in order to bring in a basic income? Definitely, we would need to keep, keep what we have for social services and we would need to increase it. This also ties into the um, whole defund the police movement. Police departments are becoming more and more the people that you call for everything when it quite often could be for social work and whatever. Let's do the whole restructure, change it around, put more into social services. Corporations aren't going to like it, but they should be taxed higher and not have all those loopholes to get away. There is money there. It just needs to be reallocated. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I, I mean, that's true. I think you'd, you'd get a pushback from corporations saying, well, you know, we, we need to, in order to be competitive, we need to have these advantages, tax advantages, tax breaks, and so on and so forth, so that we can compete on a global basis. How would you respond to that? Well, corporations require people to purchase. If you're giving more purchasing power, to the population, then you are going to come out ahead. You need to have people buying stuff to make money. You don't need to be bailed out or, you know, be tax, you know, tax free if your annual numbers are good. Right. And it does seem like in order to do something like a basic income strategy across Canada, we would probably have to look at our tax system as well. There's been some really good examples. I, I like your last point. You know, I've been reading quite a bit about basic income strategy. And there is some body of evidence, albeit small, that suggests that, in fact, if you provide that basic standard of living or basic income, um, that, in fact, you're right, people have more money in their pockets to spend, and that helps to drive the economic engine. There are groups that would suggest that we all, in, in conjunction with introducing a basic um, standard of living, that we also need to reform our tax system to make it more equitable. In fact, you know, we, I don't have the numbers in front of me, so I'm not sure um, exactly how much Canada is actually spending to support the various government services. But I think support for basic income strategy comes from people that say, well, it's an opportunity for us to actually reduce government to reduce bureaucracy, to reduce some of the redundancies in our current social services program. Mm-hmm. So yeah. if we were to use the CERB as, a, as a, an example, $2,000 a month as a basic uh, payment to every Canadian, you know, that would mean that we would have to obviously cut back on some other social services, you know, in order to pay for that. And, and I think that's a reasonable strategy. Then it becomes the devil is in the detail. How do you actually do it? What do you what do you look at removing or replacing with a basic income strategy? One of the things I read that I found quite interesting was this. It's almost a mental model of of what it means to be struggling. So when we talk about employment insurance or uh, unemployment insurance, I should say, and welfare payments, they have a somewhat of a negative connotations. In other words, people feel embarrassed to be on unemployment insurance. People feel embarrassed to be on welfare. Um, whereas a basic standard of living, in other words, providing the same amount of money, say every month to every Canadian, is a more of a positive image. And, and some of the research that's come out has suggested that, in fact, um, by providing a basic standard of living, a basic income to all people, that, in fact, employment numbers go up um, a little bit anyway, at least what the research is starting to show. So it doesn't actually encourage people not to work. It actually encourages people to work. But the other amazing thing that I've seen in the, there was a recent study out of Finland that said, the well-being of people went up a Mm -hmm. very large amount. In other words, how people perceived themselves, how people perceived other people within their community, and more importantly, a significant increase in trust of government. It's, It's changing kind of what is perceived as being a negative perception to something that's far more positive. Mm, And actually, that's actually a really good point too, is the stigma attached with being on um, whether it's welfare, whether it's unemployment, whether it's a disability. Because, I mean, I know, I know people who are on disability and they have invisible disability and they just get, they get treated like they're, they're slackers. I've been on welfare way back in the day when I was a single mother and the way that some people treat those who are on welfare, even though I had young children, and couldn't work because they needed care, if there was a basic income, then there's no judgment. Everybody's on the same level. And if they pull themselves above that level, you know, through jobs, through hobbies or whatever, then that's great. That's fantastic. But if everybody has that same level with no stigma whatsoever on you're getting this or you're getting that or you're getting the other thing, then I say that's another win for basic income. 
Yeah, I, I mean that tends to be uh, you know an idea that I, at least that I've seen that's that's a fairly positive one. I mean, in mental health, we know we've seen massive increases in mental illness, in particular during the pandemic, which you know everybody's experienced. Uh, you know, call it COVID anxiety. Um, but you know the, the numbers are are pretty definitive. I mean, we we have an increase in mental health issues, related issues. So you're right. I mean, removing that stigma is important. There are people that talk about this idea of a basic income strategy as, and I've heard different models. But um, one says give the same thing to all. Canadians. So if we take service as an example and say it's 2000 a month, every Canadian gets 2000 a month. Now, there's obviously people that are more in need of it than others, um, but, the, but the justification for making it universal would be that those that really don't need it as much as others will spend it, will save it, will invest it, and which all which is considered a positive in terms of uh, supporting our economy. The other model is, of course, saying, well, we should have a, a basic income strategy, but those that make above a certain annual income would not be eligible. What do you think about those two different perspectives? Actually, I think there's a middle ground for that. Make it universal. Everybody gets, you know, 2000 a month. If you are above a certain um, income, let's say, so 2000 a month, 24000 a year. So let's just arbitrarily, let's just say 40000 If you're above 40000 then it becomes taxable. Okay. You know, I'm, I'm not a numbers cruncher, right? I wouldn't know what would be a good arbitrary amount, but, you know, 40000 50000 if your annual income is, you know, X number of dollars, then that 2000 a month is taxable. Right. And then go from there. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great idea, actually. That's a, a nice balance of the two. So you're saying that those within that $2,000 threshold, if they're not making a certain amount of, in their annual income, that they wouldn't be taxed. And those above the threshold, whatever that threshold happens to be, would be taxed. Mm-hmm. I like that idea. And then that way there, it does it becomes universal. And it's still money that's out there. Right. You know, they, they can save a portion of it to pay the taxes later, or they, but the majority will still be spent, and it'll be out into the community. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I certainly see the rationale behind it. I mean, you know, it's, it's a hard thing. Concept, I, I think I, I support that 100%. In reality, I, we, you know, without actually seeing the numbers, but I have done a little bit of research on Canada's GDP composite, and, and certainly government services make up a huge portion of our GDP. So in other words, we have a lot of government. Um, mm-hmm. And my sense is that perhaps we have a little bit too much. There's a layers and layers of redundancy. And, you know, I understand what the government's trying to do here is they're trying to create jobs for people in, in remote areas. I think about, you know, for example, the GST offices that seem to be spread out across the country in various uh, sort of out-of-the-way mm-hmm. places, what I would consider out-of-the-way places. And, you know, that's that's done to create jobs. So, you know, in implementing a basic income strategy, there would be a certain degree of displacement. In other words, we would have to cut back on other services because the government is providing this basic income. And of course, that's going to result in, in people losing their jobs. So, you know, I think we have right. to be prepared that any kind of change at this at this level will have um, a detrimental impact to certain groups of people. But as you say, if you have a basic income, then at least if you lose your job or if there's a, through restructuring of government or reduction of government, then at least you have that basic income for the time being while you look for a new job. And as well, too, is like there are people, let's just say, um, if you have a basic income, all those people that work with EI claimants and um, disability claimants and all of that, they could be moved into other roles or actually move into some place in the community where they would actually be doing more help. You touch on an interesting point there as well, because some of the studies I've read have indicated that what happens when you implement a basic income strategy is that you get people actually doing um, charity work. In other words, there's a huge rise in contribution to community-based initiatives uh, where they're not being paid. So in other words, they actually mm-hmm. have the time and, and they have the ability to do that. And that that's what sort of supports the notion of making it universal. 
because again, those that, that don't really need the $2,000 a month, at least they have that cushion there or have that money. And that actually is, as the research has indicated, that a lot of those people will now spend more time uh, on community-based initiatives where they're not being paid. So not-for-profit type work, things that are important to them. Um, and that's a good thing for, for our society, I think. Mm, absolutely. I mean, it's, I think everybody, or I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of people wish that they could do more within their community. You know, I mean, I know that, you know, everybody dreams, oh, if I won the lottery, you know, and became, you know, instantly rich. And I know that I would not stop working. I would just change what I was doing. I might volunteer at a wildlife rehab or at um, the SPCA or something like that instead of working to make money. Yeah, and that's what the research at least is starting to indicate, that this is this is what tends to happen when you introduce um, a basic income strategy, is there there are more contributions made to the community, as you say, to food banks and a variety of other causes. And, you know, the research in, around this same idea in organizations is, is pretty comprehensive. In other words, Organizational experts, organizational psychologists have studied this and, and they've determined that if you give people enough money so that money is no longer an issue, in other words, so that they can live, pay their bills, pay their rent, buy food, and so on and so forth, then people within your organization will actually turn their attention to doing really cool things, innovative things, out-of-the-box type thinking, focusing on how they can make your organization better um, as, you know, not just task-based work, which is typically what they do when they feel that they're being undercompensated, but moving beyond that and saying, here are some things that we could do that would be really interesting, would really help the company in the long term, and I'm willing to take on this extra work in order to make it happen. So there's a lot of research at the organizational level that supports this notion of creating a basic income that's enough for people then to be able to turn their focus to things that are really important to them, that they're very passionate about. And, and we see this constantly. It's, it's why people, you know, work all week long. And then on the weekend, as you said, we'll go and work at the food bank or they'll play an instrument. I mean, these are things that aren't producing any money, monetary value, but they're producing a level of pleasure and, and um, you know, helping that individual with the things that they feel are important to them in their lives. Which which brings us full circle back to being able to explore your passion. Yeah, and, and I think you're, this is an area that I'm particularly interested in, the whole idea of innovation. How do we increase Canada's capacity for innovation at, at a systemic level? And it's true. I mean, if people are able to follow their passion, I believe we'll have a much more diverse society and we'll see a lot more innovation as a result. Um, again, because people are motivated not by money, but by the things that are meaningful to them. They're not, they're not working to live. Well, we know, you know, that, that this is um, the basic income strategy is something being considered by our current government. Um, in fact, I learned that there was a uh, pilot being done in Ontario just leading into COVID or just prior to COVID. Um, it was shut down. Um, my understanding mm -hmm. is the implementation was not particularly good. It's very hard. It's very hard to run a pilot study on these things because, of course, we have entrenched um, so social services that we that we receive, and then when you try to introduce, um, you know, a different a different model, a different strategy, it's very hard to. You can't really remove. Um, the things that they, you know, the services that they're already getting in order to do this. So the study becomes a bit skewed. Um, you know, in Finland, mm -hmm. Finland, they were able to do it across the board. They had much better results as because of that, um, because they, they were able to actually separate out the social services and have a proper control group where one received the existing um, levels of service and one received this universal payment. And so they were able to compare the two groups fairly accurately. And there are other countries mm -hmm. in the world that are doing parts of it. So, for example, in Denmark, and this came up in another show uh, we were doing, but in Denmark, they actually pay students to go to university. And I think it's somewhere equivalent to about $950 U.S. a month to go and attend university. And I, you know. I, oh, nice. Well, the rationale behind it is that 
you know, in our current model, and, and far more so in the United States than in Canada, young people are graduating with enormous debts, um, mm-hmm. school debts, and then they spend five years or more trying to get out of the hole, trying to pay off this debt. So it creates this yep. level of stress, obviously. It takes their focus away from their passions because they have to get a job that pays the most amount of money so they can pay off their debt. In Denmark, they believe that if you do this, that when people graduate from university or college, they have no debt. They're able to contribute to society as soon as they graduate by starting new businesses. They're, you know, they have a positive outlook. Uh, they have the energy mm-hmm. um, and the wherewithal to actually do the things that they really want to do and pursue the careers that they really want to pursue right out of the gate. So they actually yeah. believe, now the, there's not enough data really to determine how effective this has been, but they really believe that that will actually help drive a stronger economy. Yeah. And that else, once again, that brings it back to the ability, you know, for innovation um, in organization or businesses, because now they have the wherewithal that they can, you know, be the innovators as opposed to just the workers. Right. Yeah. It's, it's moving away from the industrial model. No matter how much the world has changed, and it has changed significantly, certainly since 1993 with the dawn of the World Wide Web, but the world has changed, but a lot of the structures under which we operate are still very much industrial. They still harken back mm-hmm. 150 years. And so the way, yeah. we, the way we learn, we go to school in you know, separate classes, and we sit in desks, and we study um, knowledge in, in defined subject matter, discipline, silos, you know, English history, geography here, but we don't actually integrate them very effectively. Um, you know, same with work, you know, people go in and it's, it's sort of the punch card mentality. You know, there's a certain tasks they've got to complete every day. Um, most of their most people's days are com- uh, comprised of completing tasks rather than actually advancing their knowledge or advancing the capability of the organization they work with. They're actually just completing tasks. It's very much an industrial model. And some will say mm-hmm. that that's part of our problem, at least insofar as innovation goes, is that when we're in an industrial model, there's not a lot of innovation going on. So even though we've got great technologies and and things that will advance our capabilities, the structures in which we operate are actually holding us back. Yeah, and you see that a lot with um, companies as they as they become larger and larger and like corporations as they become larger and larger and larger. There's fewer and fewer um, innovations. There's fewer and fewer opportunities for the 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 working man, in quotes, to make a difference. Right. My experience has been, and certainly in business, is that, you know, ultimately people want to do great work. I don't believe people are fundamentally lazy. I think what happens is a lot of people get into situations almost like the, the, you know, the rat on the treadmill. They get into a job. It just becomes redundant. They're doing the same thing over and over and over again. And then they just sort of lapse into that. It's not their preference but it's the way the job is structured. They're not, they're not being incentivized, and I don't mean monetarily, but they're not being incentivized to do things differently or, or to be creative or to introduce new ideas is not part of the job description. But mm-hmm. my experience has been that people, given, given the right structures, will want to do great work and will actually be creative and be innovative as long as the structure allows them to do that. I recall um, I grew up in Hamilton and father was a steelworker in Tabasco. Mm-hmm. And at that time, they had a program where if the workers could find a way to um, increase safety or to increase production or whatever, they have like a suggestion box, basically put it in. The powers that be would, would look at it and talk about, you know, can this be implemented or maybe ask the workers some questions and whatever. And if it was something that was, oh, my gosh, we didn't see this before, they would actually be incentivized. They would get an, a lump sum that would be a share of what productivity would have been lost if it was a um, safety issue or, you know, the increased productivity. They would get a check for X number of dollars as a percentage. Right. And it it was something that incentivized them 
to be part of the company, not just a cog in the you know in the in the motor. You know, right? You know, I'm very familiar with that. So that was a sort of called the total quality management movement that really um, began in Japan in the 70s in the automotive industry. But it was the idea that the people on the line actually see the problems sooner. Uh, than do the executives that are responsible for making decisions. So it was the giving the employee the power to actually stop uh, the production line in order to, to point out a deficiency or to say, you know, if we did this, it would be far more effective, um, it would produce a better product, and so on and so forth. So that that whole idea of total quality management permeated a lot of industries, and, and you're right, um, DeFasco is, is certainly one I'm familiar with. Everyone is familiar with the 3M model and the sticky note uh, story, but the notion that if you find something that's better, that actually helps the organization, that contributes to the organization, that you should share in, the, uh, in that benefit, however that's done. And to loop that back to the basic income is if, if workers are so worried about, I have to keep this job, I, I, you know, I have to be able to put a roof over my head and I have to be able to get groceries. If they are so, con- so worried about that, they will not be able or willing to speak up for things that would or, would or could potentially help industries in different ways. Right. I have another question for you, and I've heard this again uh, in relation to the CERB, and I would assume we would hear the same kind of response back should we introduce some kind of basic standard of living income. You know, people are saying, well, we can't get people to come back to work during this period of the COVID and the CERB payments because people are making more money sitting at home receiving their CERB payment, so they're not coming back to work. It's going to create this disincentive. What do you think about that? Well, that says to me that one of two things, either the job isn't paying enough or the job is not attracting the right people and you may need to change your job description. That's my feeling as well. When I hear this, I think, well, does that say that people are lazy or does that say that the basic standard of living, in other words, the minimum wage standard of living is simply not enough? Um, and I know mm-hmm. what it is in British Columbia, It's and it's much lower in British Columbia than it is in Ontario. It, certainly, there's no way you can live in a city like yeah. Vancouver or Toronto, and I assume even Halifax. No, Halifax is at twelve fifty five right now, minimum wage. And average one-bedroom apartment right now is, I think, about, I think it was 1400 the last time I checked. Wow. So, yeah, the homeless population is just getting larger and larger. Yeah, and I, we certainly see that in Vancouver. I haven't been back to Toronto in some time, and certainly since the virus has uh, hit in March. But, you know, it, that that does raise that question. They say our minimum wage is too low. If people can't afford mm-hmm. to live on what they're working for, it's no wonder that people are saying, well, you know what, I make more money if I work a certain number of hours and then collect the CERB than it would be if I went to work. And you're right, it says to me that the um, the minimum wage is too low. But, you know, and I would also say, it's interesting, I've had this conversation with people that actually make a lot of money too, and, and they do the same thing. It's, it's interesting. I, I was chatting with a guy not long ago who was saying, I make sure that I never make more than $100,000 a year because anything above that, I get taxed at a much higher rate. So I keep my income at $100,000 and no more every year, and I end up with more money in my pocket that way. So it's happening at both ends of the spectrum. It's not just happening with people mm-hmm. that um, are making a basic uh, standard of living wage. Um, it's, it's, yeah. it's happening um, you know, in the middle class, in the upper middle class as well. Mm-hmm. Financially, um, minimum wage should definitely be higher. But there are also industries where people really don't want to work because of um, whether it's the management or whether it's just the culture of the industry. Mm-hmm. People don't want to work at Walmart unless they have to because the culture there. You know, people don't want to work in call centers unless they have to because it's soul crushing. So there are different reasons that people would not want to when they have like their serve or whatever. And I think it is really, it is up to the companies, the corporations, the employers that they have to adapt 
Yes, I, I would tend to agree with you. As I say, it is something that is appearing in the news more and more often. There's more and more people talking about this idea of a basic income strategy. Um, and there is some suggestion that it might be a, something that will be introduced by the Liberal government. Um, and we'll see what happens there. But I've certainly been reading a lot about it. And I do think it is worth um, it's worth thinking about. I think that's one of the things about this pandemic, this period in history, which I think perhaps is a once in a lifetime opportunity to kind of rethink a lot of these things that we've been uh, grown accustomed to. And we think that's just the way things are. Um, and certainly the pandemic has shown us that that's not the case, that this stuff is very fragile. We've seen businesses shifting very, very quickly to remote work. There's been a lot mm -hmm. of, um, and, and, that, and that is seen, I think, as a positive, not, to, not by everybody, but I think what it does, you know, inadvertently is it creates um, an opportunity for people to live in places that they can afford to live. Um, they don't yeah. have to live in downtown Toronto, downtown Halifax, downtown Vancouver. They can move to the outskirts where they can afford to live. So I, again, I, I don't think this is a negative, but I think we were in this, this, you know, eye of the hurricane, if you want to call it, but where we do have this time to rethink and to look at new ideas and explore new ways of, you know, structuring our societies um, to make them better for everybody. Yes. And I think it also allows corporations to go, hey, we have been against work from home or flex schedules or shared schedules, you know, where X person works 20 hours and Y person works 20 hours and they share a position. Right. Um, they've been very against it, but all of a sudden, a lot of what they were very rigid and against, corporations have been, oh, we can do this because of the pandemic, which means that they can do it at any time. Yeah, I, that's a great point. I think the pandemic has shown us what we actually can do. Where in the past, we might have said, no, we can't possibly do that. Well, listen, Krista, thank you so much. We're at the end of the episode. I really appreciate your ideas. I thought they're very thought-provoking. Um, I'd like to actually follow up at some point with a, a, a full episode on this basic income strategy. Um, but And maybe you'll come back as a guest and, uh, on that. But I do appreciate your time and, and uh, your contribution and all of your thoughts around a basic in income strategy. No, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's been enjoyable. In our final episode of Season 1 of For What It's Worth, we highlight the promising ideas raised by our guests this season and discuss key themes and exciting directions that we have in mind for Season 2. You won't want to miss Window to the Workshop or What It's Worth. <laughs>